0: In an effort to stay on time, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Uh, My name is Gunjan Parikh. I'm an assistant professor in uh, the the program in trauma and department of neurology. I uh, came over here from New York about four years ago, and this is my first faculty job. Um, Today I was tasked to update all of you in uh, the uh, updates that have happened in clinical trials in the field of neurocritical care. I spent time in the in the seventh floor of Godelsky and also in Neurotrauma. So some of you will rotate with me. Um, so a quick outline. I guess in, in talking about these, the outline of the talk, uh, just always consider disease-specific mechanisms as you're um, thinking about brain injury and, and, and thinking about these disease-specific mechanisms when you're actually targeting... Uh, your therapies during the resuscitation phase and consider the uh, natural history of the different phenotypes. And so along those same lines, uh, really want to give an update of recent clinical trials in acute brain injury across these three different uh, phenotypes, these general phenotypes of global cerebral ischemia, traumatic brain injury, focal ischemic, and hemorrhagic injury. I'll, uh, you know, this group needs no introduction for the first two, so I'll probably blow through uh, both uh, post-cardiac arrest brain injury as well as traumatic brain injury, and then spend most of the time on ICH and stroke. So as you know, brain injury is common after arrest. It's the cause of death in about 70% of patients after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. The underlying pathophysiology uh, involves a complex uh, cascade triggered by ischemia and reperfusion, but uh, I guess the pathophysiology hasn't always been uh, thought about whenever um, instituting therapies. We've always thought about therapies as phase therapies, so phase one, as you can see there. Um, and those are the only, mostly only ones we've <coughs> trialed and used. And clinically, what do we see? Neurologically, we see the spectrum from memory dysfunction all the way to uh, coma, seizures, myoclonus, et cetera. So just jumping right into the clinical trials that are relevant to you, we're all familiar with the Nielsen study. That's a few comments from a neurointensivist perspective. It was well executed, large, uh, randomized study. They did a great job of measuring outcome. Um, unfortunately, there was no difference in survival, though. Um, the table that you see there is too small, but suffice it to say, uh, randomization worked, um, and that's a table of baseline characteristics. So. Where do we go from here? There's, I think there's true equipoise, uh, whether 33 or 33, 36 degrees uh, works, and this has been debated by uh, at the committee level here at the University of Maryland for a while, while awaiting guidance from the AHA, which actually came in, back in October, November. So here we've, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we've opted for 33, but there's an allowance for 36, for example, after post-traumatic arrest. A couple of things to note is that the rate of complication is the same in both groups. Um, And remember, 36 is not really, uh, that's also considered uh, a mild form of hypothermia as well, right? So uh, the the Haka and Bernard studies, they were comparing hypothermia to hyperthermia, uh, essentially. And here we're actually truly uh, (coughs) comparing normothermia to hypothermia. Um, 36 may be harder to maintain um, and may require some more vigilance. One thing I wanted to point out that may be relevant to us because our patient population is a bit sicker is that uh, you'll notice that three-fourths of their patients had bicentered CPR. And so the mean time to ROSC, the time to CPR was much faster. So ultimately, does this is really uh, relevant to us. There is, this is a different patient population. And so if you look more closely um, at the modified Rankin scale on that table at the bottom, basically if you didn't die, uh, whether thermic or hyperthermic, uh, then you were independent at home at six months. And so again, that, that sort of brings to light that idea that um, three-fourths of the patients uh, got bystander CPR. And so there's more than just temperature-driving outcomes, obviously. So where do we go from here? We all know that fever, uh, any elevation beyond 37 is bad. And so I think we're continuing to cool to 33, but recognizing that 36 may be acceptable. And uh, some of these post-hoc analyses of important subgroups are, are, are now coming, or will be coming out. The duration of TTM has increased from 24 hours cold, followed by 48 hours controlled normothermia. And, uh, the big thing that I want to talk about also is that neuroprognostication is significantly impacted. So, this is what it used to look like. Um, this is our current American Academy of Neurology uh, approved prognostic algorithm. This is 2006. It's old, um, based off the Levy criteria that was published in the 1980s. And they added this concept of looking at neurophysiologic testing as well um, and biomarkers. This is pre-hypothermia area. So the neuro exam still governs everything. That's why we obsess about sedation, uh, that there's no sedation, uh, but the timing is different. Our ability to predict, um, even based on uh, beyond exam, including uh, EEG and MRI is inadequate since the hypothermia era. So in context of the guidelines being outdated, there's two patterns of injury that we see on imaging that govern uh, what we look for in an exam and what diagnostic tests that we're uh, ordering. So the typical uh, picture that we see after rest, especially on MRI, is, uh, is twofold. It's sort of a, a pattern of profound energy failure as well as a watershed injury. And so this is a typ- the typical MRI, and uh, metabolic failure affects those parts of the brain that are most highly metabolically active, and that includes the basal ganglia. Um, So there's the head of caudate, the basal ganglia, the thalamus, and then you can see the cortices too. So wherever neuronal cell bodies are. And this is a flare sequence. You see a lot of brightness that uh, tells you that there's vasogenic and cytotoxic edema. There's a superimposed hypoperfusion pattern or watershed pattern along the ACA, MCA, uh, PCA, MCA territories. And this is a schematic of that. I think you've seen this before. So I think the big take-home from the TTM trial as it relates to the neuroprognostication was is to delay it. Um, they actually mandated that no withdrawal of care could occur for six days. And so there's a longer observation time. Um, prognostication is multimodal, and clearly this is practice changing. And so just to go through this schematic. Um, Given that prognosis after cardiac arrest is multimodal, we find that uh, we use EEG, uh, SSEPs. So to talk about EEG a little bit, it's not just for seizure detection. Um, It's looking at patterns of injury and brain health and uh, monitoring blood flow. Uh, Obviously, that's impacted by sedation and temperature and motor activity, so there's a lot of artifact to consider um, the EEG pattern can be reactive or non-suppressed uh, and so the time points that we're really looking at different features of EEG are at uh, time of initiation of cooling. Um, so within the first 12 hours of, uh, of rest and then again during rewarming, warming um, and then of course for prognostication once uh, you're sort of 72 hours and beyond. SECPs, You'll see us sporadically order it. We're getting better at being uh, algorithmically driven and ordering our tests for multimodal prognostication. SACPs is a big deal. And essentially, if, you have, if you're 72 hours out and beyond, and you're not opening your eyes, that's typically when we trigger opening the SCC, uh, ordering the SACPs. And um, it essentially tells you about the integrity of the reticular activating system and it's sensitive and specific. So you're stimulating the median nerve um, and you are, uh, you're sort of looking at, you're following the peaks and latencies along that pathway at the elbow, at the plexus and the neck, as well as at the cortex. And so if, the, if you get N20 signals at the cortex on both sides that are present, that means that the somatosensory pathway is, the, in, the integrity is intact through the brainstem as well. And by association, that means the nearby reticular activating systems, in fact. A little bit about biomarkers. You'll see us order biomarkers. Um, the truth is, is that the, the trend is what's important. And pre-hypothermia, there was a threshold set of 33 that was a predictor for poor prognosis for uh, neuron-specific enolase. It's called neuron-specific enolase, but really you can see it. Um, it's I think rbcs and platelets also make NSE. and i here have listed s100 beta i believe adipose tissue and and some maybe even muscle tissue makes s100 beta so they're not exactly specific um, hypothermia does lower the nsc in the lab in the post hypothermia area era uh, patients who've had hypothermia and have had NSEs up to 80s have actually um, had good prognosis so there's a false positive rate, that's unacceptable there. And um, so, and then neuroimaging, I think initially before the hypothermia area, we looked at CT. I think the best study was out of MGH, and they looked at um, a quantitative scoring of Hounsfield units in pre-specified areas, areas of the brain, uh, and particularly the internal limb of the, uh, the posterior limb of the internal capsule and in the thalamus. and But now, post-hypothermia area, what are we looking for in MRI? The earliest that we should order is day three. And really, you'll see us moving out more towards days five and six. And similar to looking at the integrity of the RAS on SSCPs, we're getting more advanced imaging techniques, like tensor imaging, uh, to look at the uh, integrity of the white matter pathways through the brainstem. And I think we're still learning. as far as how sensitive and specific it is in the post-hypothermia era. Um, but it definitely guides us in putting in context what the neuro exam is showing if the patient's in a persistent coma, 72 hours post-rewarming, uh, and you see a, that pattern of injury that I showed you, then that's, that's helpful in triggering next steps and guiding family conversations. So this is one example of an algorithm that we're uh, looking to protocolize here. um, And it gives you a sense of what we're integrating uh, in order to prognosticate. And you can see the thresholds of what we do at admission, days one to two, and days three to seven. There's a lot of stuff here at days three to seven. So all the diagnostic tests have been moved um, later in admission. So what guidance did the AHA give us back in October? They, uh, I think the basic findings are that TTM no longer means cool for 24 hours, uh, rewarm, and then take off the device, right? Uh, we're targeting 33 to 36, um, and we're maintaining normothermia uh, for a total of up to 72 hours, and that takes vigilance. And we're delaying prognostication, as I mentioned. <clears throat> So moving on to traumatic brain injury. Uh, And really, again, we're focusing on trials here, so I'll be brief. Uh, The demographics are shifting, uh, rendering predictive models inaccurate. And uh, as you can see here, there's a higher incidence of ED visits, uh, but we think that's somehow related to the aging population, more falls and subdurals. Uh, We're seeing less severe TBI and more, more mild TBI. Um, this group knows well the approach to traumatic brain injury, uh, but just by the way of introducing the topic, um, again, as I said in the beginning, remember to think about uh, the, the the actual phenotype that you're targeting during the resuscitation phase. And uh, so this is uh, a schematic of the Monroe-Kelly Doctrine. This is a schematic of autoregulation. Um, and see. So, you're really trying to think of these two things whenever you're preventing secondary brain injury or ischemia and cerebral edema. And so in reality, so this is a a stepwise approach that was published in the New England Journal um, towards raised ICP. Um, As you know, in reality, this happens in parallel, Uh, but you could see the level of evidence provided for these different measures. Um, So, the point here is that our practice is mostly based on level three evidence still, and the question is where does hypothermia really sit here? So the NABISH-2 trial, um, it sort of was a mixed approach towards uh, as a neuroprotective uh, treatment after head injury. And it included ICP control, but it was testing a fixed dose. And rewarming was done irrespective of ICP uh, control during the rewarming phase. So you could see the sort of rapid rewarming phase. Uh, the DSMB, uh, the interim analysis showed potential harm, so they only got through less than 100 patients, and they showed, failed to pr- improve outcome. And so, really, in the last uh, year, Eurotherm was published. It was underfunded, um, and unfortunately, also didn't show a signal of efficacy. So this was usual care for ICP versus hypothermia first, and and hypothermia before osmotherapy. And and, and the key things here is that those in the hypothermic group, they didn't get osmotherapy prior to hypothermia. But there's more osmotherapy patients who crossed over to to hypothermia, and so maybe the reason why it failed was uh, it was a combined therapy, perhaps, and failed uh, hypothermia. I should state though, uh, failed as a stage two or tier two therapy. But just note the your bang for your buck for ICP control. It's very effective in in controlling ICP. Um, but, and we've recently. Uh, been, Dr. Stein's been working on the uh, updated traumatic brain injury guidelines, and uh, we've actually moved it down to the- tier three. So when do you think about it now? I think it's sort of at the refractory stage. When you're starting to think about penobarb and uh, there's no clear way to get them for, to decompression, uh, then that's sort of when we're going to be thinking about therapeutic hypothermia for ICP. And there, there are some subgroup analyses that are gonna be interesting. A large proportion of the patients in uretherm had uh, contusional brain injury or uh, uh, subdural hemorrhages. And so the idea being that focal brain injury after head trauma um, portends a more inflamed brain, is more, has more of the natural history of ischemia, reperfusion injury like cardiac arrest um, so there is the Hopes trial, and those are, the, uh, and the inclusion criteria for that are patients who have subdurals who go on and have evacuation, they have electrocorticography strips placed, and their, tar- their target is ischemia reperfusion, and their measure is cortical spreading depressions. So the idea being that uh, the more you control CSDs with hypothermia, the better outcomes you're going to have. But I think, again, this is another trial that I'm told is underfunded. And it's just logistically very complex. It's going to be very difficult to carry this out and accomplish. I think the real problem is, and and part of the research that I've been uh, working on for the past four years, is better phenotyping the brain injury at outset and through the resuscitation phase. And we're thinking that this has a big reason for why a lot of the clinical trials have failed. And so our current clinical grading systems of mild, moderate, to severe are incomplete. And um, we need better data collection for outcomes, allowing for different granularity for different severities of injury at different time points. And so that effort, um, and we're a big part of that, Track TRAC-TBI. And this is a multi-center observational study allowing us to validate promising imaging, proteomic, genetic, and biomarkers that will improve our... Ability to subclassify and phenotype uh, traumatic brain injury. So moving on to intracerebral hemorrhage. Um, There's a lot of morbidity and mortality involved in this type of stroke. Uh, This is 10 to 15% of all strokes. Um... So 40% 30-day mortality is typically what we see nowadays. I think a decade ago is over 60%. Um, Only 20% of ICH patients are independent at six months. And I'm actually curious to see what ours is going to be. We actually see about 175, on average, intracerebral hemorrhage cases per year. So it's a pretty busy ICH service. So what are the factors, what what do you as fellows need to know on admission? And we were reminded this at our Comprehensive Stroke Center recertification was that we really need to be documenting uh, our admission severity as graded by the ICH score. So what are the factors that predict outcome or 30-day mortality on on admission? And really, the two biggest factors are ICH volume and IVH. So the components of the ICH scores, you should commit this to memory, um, are the GCS score trifurcated, ICH volume greater than or less than 30, the presence or absence of intraventricular hemorrhage, uh, location, infantentorial is worse, age greater than or less to 80. And so as I mentioned, now we're required there's, uh, to actually document this in the chart. Within six hours of admission, just like we document GCS for TBI and hunt Hess for subarachnoid hemorrhage. And so if those are the two big driving factors for outcome, 30-day mortality by the ICH score and 90-day functional outcomes by the FUNC score, which I didn't mention, um, what are some clinical trials that are targeting those two most prognostic factors? One is clear IVH. And so this is a summary slide that's being shown at meetings. And the inclusion criteria was a small volume of ICH, so meaning less than 30 cc's, and large IVH, which means um, obstruction of the third and fourth ventricles and a neurosurgeons considering placing an uh, external ventricular drain. Unfortunately, uh, the trial showed that installation of TPA through the EVD is great at clearing IVH, uh, but, and it decreases death, but not disability. So we're committing, uh, we're keeping more patients alive with an NNT of about 10, but they're more in a severely disabled state, modified rank in four or five. So we need to do better than that. Dr. Hanley, who's the PI for this, he has mentioned that uh, that in in the 60% subset For which the hypothesis was properly properly tested and uh, everything was carried out properly. The NNT for going home was actually 10, so uh, maybe subgroup analyses will will bear this out, but this actually has not been published yet. What about ICH volume? So this is old Cincinnati data. You see a linear association with volume and uh, disability at 30 days. So is there a way to reduce the ICH volume? There's the MISTI trial, and it's a surgical intervention. Here you can see a big bore catheter. Um, I think so the uh, inclusion criteria has to be an ICH volume greater than 20. and. Um, And that's your admission severity, GCS less than or equal to 13, NA stroke stroke scale score greater than 6. But here you can see a big bore catheter that's placed by the neurosurgeons, usually stereotactically in the operating room. In some locations, they're actually doing it uh, in the CAT scanner or in the MRI scanner. But the point here being that you can only test your hypothesis of clearing the ICH volume if the catheter is exactly in the middle of that ICH. which our surgeons here are very good at. And the idea here is to actually instill TPA, a milligram every eight hours, up to nine doses. Um, And in a phase two format, we've actually seen more patients going home independent at 180 days, um, as well as low bleeding complications, about 5%. And um, so it's pretty exciting to see these results, so much so that we're actually uh, involved in the uh, clear th- uh, the MISTI-3 study so and here it is visually you can see that that removing the ICH actually changes the natural history there's a leftward shift on the modified Rankin scale and just a little bit about the modified Rankin scale because uh, there's different definitions in ICH and stroke and uh, postcardiac arrest and that cut point of what's good and bad is important to remember. So just remember that three means you're uh, able to walk in ambulate. You have a moderate amount of abil- uh, disability, but you're still able to walk without assistance and take care of your own bodily needs. So, But once you're at four, that's sort of, when they talk about death and major disability, we're really talking about four, five, and six. So when I show you that ordinal distribution of modified ranking and show the group differences, you really need to pay attention to, um, to that. And so again, mobility score by mobility is better, uh, function by ADLs is better in the uh, surgical arm with uh, installation of tPA in the clot itself. And based on this, we're enrolling in a phase three trial. I think in every part of neurocritical care, we're finding out that um, the outcomes that we've been looking at are just not granular enough, and we're sort of moving towards uh, looking at quality adjusted life scores and, and patient satisfaction. I'm not sure if that's right. It might be putting the cart before the horse, uh, but there is a, a lot more granularity that we have to establish uh, for outcome uh, assessments. So I think a couple of big trials that have recently come out in the last couple of weeks. This is the INTERACT-2, which came out a couple of years ago, but ATAC-2 followed up just last week in the New England Journal, so what do we do with blood pressure in our ICH patients? Um, the, the purpose, the primary aim of INTERACT2 uh, was to determine if a management policy of early intensive blood pressure lowering target of one, uh, below 140, as compared to guideline recommended standard control of blood pressure target being 140 to 180, um, would, which one would be better? And so they, I think what bore out here is that we're, they're really, we're really good at quickly getting down the blood pressures, um, but the significance is borderline, right? And that's even after sensitivity analysis. So the robustness of, of um, if, if there's efficacy is, is questionable even after the interact too. But at least we knew it was safe uh, by that study. And so, what are the major findings? Early intensive blood pressure lowering treatment is safe. There's no increase in death or harms. It's effective, Uh, but again, borderline significance, as you saw in the um, odds ratio plot. And there's a. And so, what did the AHA? What guidance did the AHA give after Interact 2? They allowed for. acute lowering of blood pressure to 140 and saying that it was at least safe by the INTERACT-2 trial. And ATAC-2, it just came out. um, And really it's very similar, um, but I think that we really need to dig at the appendices and look at the standard of care because the standard of care has rapidly improved in the past decade and how uh, regimented we are in, in achieving our resuscitation goals after ICH. And so there's no difference in these in the arms here either. Um, and early, more intensive blood pressure lowering with the same target of less than 140 compared to guideline um, recommended less than 180. Here the difference was is that they mandated that nicardipine being used as opposed to whatever was available at the local hospital, uh, which in Europe, they use a lot of Euripidil, which is an alpha antagonist. Um, we don't use that here. Um, and labetalol and, and a, a lot of other medications but here if nicardipine after being maxed out at 15 for 30 minutes didn't achieve your goal then we would then allow for moving to labetalol or another therapy and so again you can see that we're very good at rapidly lowering the blood pressure In, in, a, you know, in reading this paper, I wasn't quite sure why they called it the minimum systolic blood pressure. That means that the average hourly minimal systolic blood pressure had to sit between these two groups. There's more to that that we sort of have to dig. But it was a negative study. Um, there's no significant uh, group difference, as you can see here. I mentioned the looking at the standard treatment group and the intensive therapy group and um, the ordinal distribution of modified Rankin and functional disability at 90 days there's no difference even visually or statistically so it's not clearly safe uh... because actually I didn't mention that so there's no increase in death but actually there was an increase in harm as it relates to renal adverse events and renal failure in the first seven days. That wasn't a pre-specified specified definition for a treatment intensive treatment-related SAEs, but uh, I think the next slide will sort of describe where we go from here. I mean, I'm curious to see what, the, what guidance the HA will provide now. But we always operate with the understanding that there's loss of autoregulation after acute brain injury. And where they've been with their blood pressure matters, whether it be their brain or their kidneys. And so there's a rightward shift of this autoregulatory curve in chronic hypertensives. So it makes sense that even if your autoregulatory curve was intact, uh, that rapidly dropping your blood pressure in a person who really chronically sits at 180s might cause uh, focal or global hypoxic ischemic injury. But oftentimes we're actually seeing evidence on imaging that there's disruptive blood-brain barrier. So you have a focal ICH, but uh, diffuse evidence of autoregulatory failure as re- on imaging on other indices, and so that sort of tells us that there's a linear relationship and that autoregulatory relationship is lost. Wanted to mention patch, uh, so you'll see us in patients who. Um, have a history of taking antiplatelets platelets and coming in with an intracerebral hemorrhage that were transfusing platelets regularly. And so this was uh, actually another negative trial. Uh, it's a randomized open-label phase three trial that just came out recently in, the last, in May. But it was, it was well done, include 190 patients in, in Europe, and, and um, it's actually our first randomized trial testing uh, for platelet transfusion of spontaneous ICH. Um, The thought was that it would reduce risk of death and dependence compared to standard care, but uh, they actually showed the opposite. So it's not safe. There's an increase in death and harms, and and there's no significant benefit uh, on the primary endpoint. And there was, uh, even after sensitivity analyses, that robustness of the inferiority of giving platelets held up. But this was a small sample size. There are larger studies that are ongoing, so we'll await the uh, the results of those studies but that does uh, put in the question we'll have to really think uh, closely about whether we should what we should do about our current practice of transfusing platelets um, definitely in intracerebral hemorrhage but maybe even in other forms of acute brain injury that I've mentioned and so here again getting used to looking at these group differences on ordinal distribution of modified Rankin. Here's a treatment group, platelet transfusion, standard care. And you can see the proportion of patients that are in modified rank in 4, 5, and 6 are, are, are proportionate a lot more. So really, we were hoping to see the opposite. Um, recently, also, the INCH trial came out. And I know our practice has shifted towards uh, using uh, four-factor PCC after warfarin-related intracerebral hemorrhage. And this study, uh, which is a recently uh, recent prospective randomized open label blinded study, that had 54 patients in, in, in five centers in Germany um, with uh, adult patients with an INR greater than two. Findings here, and this is a different form octoplex, which we use um, um, veriplex. But essentially, they're the same thing. And so, prompt. So the primary endpoint was prompt INR reversal after warfarin-related ICH, and and that bore out. So there's a significant effect odds ratio of 30 and rapidly reducing the INR less than 1.2, and there's no increase in death or harms. And in secondary analyses, there's reduced early hematomal expansion as well, and there's a consistent direction even after adjustment. Of course, underpowered for clinical endpoints, but just to point out a few things here, Look at that median hematoma volume on admission CT. It's just 13 mL, so I mean, it's kind of small, right? Definitely less than 30, which was a cut point on the ICH score, um, but equal amongst groups. Another thing that I wanted to point out, also this shows just the robustness in this, of the uh, achieving that primary outcome. And same with the reducing hematomal expansion Oh, the one thing I wanted to point out was that most patients in the FFP group that didn't achieve their goal by three hours actually, so 83% of those patients ended up being in getting PCC. Uh, and so, so even though despite there's that much crossover and our median volume was so small, there's such, still a huge effect size. And then lastly, what was impressive with, was this uh, Kaplan-Meier curve. There's a survival difference. And this was mostly within the first 48 hours and directly related to, to hematomal expansion. So uh, this is a trend uh, towards a big survival difference. Um, but the fact that it was related to death in the first 48 hours and related to hematomal expansion is, a, is, a, is an endpoint that we can target. And then moving on to ischemic stroke, and I know this has been presented in detail, so I'm gonna really focus on the, uh, on the parts of ischemic stroke management that I found interesting. Um, but I'll start with a case that we saw, a, a patient that we had here in the neuro ICU. This is a 74-year-old man with a past medical history of TIA, diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and coronary artery disease. His last known normal was at 0130 when he was noted by his wife to go to the bathroom, heard him call out it a little bit over an hour later. Found to be weak on the left and having slurred speech. His presenting NIH stroke scale score was seven. And you can hear, you can see a hyperdense MCA sign. And um, maybe if you squint just enough, there might be some early ischemic changes, uh, but can't rewind it here. TPA was administered within that four and a half hour um, time frame that was extended out to an ECAS3. And this patient was brought to her angiosuite with a groin puncture at 0620, which is less than six hours, which the new guidelines are recommending for thrombectomy. And full revascularization, the TIKI-3, was achieved um, at 0700, so pretty quickly. So you can see the cutoff, and then TIKI-3, cerebral blood flow through that territory. So pretty remarkable result. So we're better at selecting patients and, and logistically getting them into the angiosuite. And so, remarkably, and when does this ever happen? In the span of six months, there's five randomized studies that publish an IA therapy with stent-assisted clot retriever, with an, and overall there's an NNT of five with an infinitely larger NNH. And so just, um, there's a clear signal for efficacy, and I think we found the, the, the right device, we fixed the logistics, and um, we're getting better at identifying those patients who are most likely to benefit. And this is what the the, the update, uh, updated AHA guidelines support as well. And so the patients that we're targeting have a pre-stroke MRS score of 0 to 1. That means they have no deficits, essentially. And they're receiving IVTPA within the four and a half hour time frame. They have a, a documented occlusion of the ICA or proximal MCA, M1. Uh, they're an adult, uh, but we're not restricting it to... Uh, we're not. We're also making it available to older age patients. NIH Stroke Scale score has to be greater than or equal to six. Aspects of greater than or equal to six. What you should know about aspect score: it's a, a CT rating tool. It looks at early signs of ischemia. Ischemia, you'll see areas of darkness in segments of the MCA territory, and less than seven is bad. And so they're trying to pick those patients who don't have. A high probability of having hemorrhagic transformation after thrombectomy, and we have to be able to initiate treatment, have groin puncture within six hours of symptom onset. Um, we're getting better at that, and our our pre-hospital system here is is better than most. And, um, but I think there's a there's a new part coming down the pike about bypass, uh, and, and there's the idea that patients who meet these certain criteria may be able to bypass uh, to come to a comprehensive stroke center, of which there's only two in the state of Maryland. Not three, I think there's two. One thing I wanted to point out here is that, um, interestingly, in the M- Mr. Clean trial, which was one of the five randomized trials, that general anesthesia actually negated the, endovas- the endovascular benefit that was shown in that study it was not powered for that question um, but this is concerning and this is actually prospectively being looked at in two european studies but again this idea of shift on a modified rank scale more patients have a poor uh, outcome simply if they receive general anesthesia so what's the mechanism behind that i, I don't think we exactly know uh, some are thinking that maybe it's just the induction and dropping blood pressure and putting uh, penumbral tissue that's living on collaterals at risk during that period of intubation and, and, and induction. But this has to be uh, studied a little bit better. And so, how's our practice changed? We, we are bypassing the ICU for the most part, going directly to the angiosuite patients are receiving more conscious sedation we're getting better at that part we're spending more times as intensive as actually in the in the angio suite um, titrating the conscious sedation being very nuanced about it make uh, make making sure there's no big blood, blood pressure drops um, so I think that there's a lot more work to be done to to, uh, to make sure patients don't move and put the risk the patients at risk of dissection um, and, and helping the angio guys have the best technical outcome um, and, and achieve TIKI-3 flow in, in an acceptable time frame. I think these last couple of slides are, are sort of most interesting and in where the field of neurocritical care is and should be moving to is taking a step back and not looking for the magic bullet, but really better classifying phenotyping injury on day of admission. And I think ischemic stroke is at the forefront in doing that and using imaging and MR imaging. And one example of that is stroke of unknown onset. Um, here it says 8 to 25% of patients from this uh, review paper um, arrive with a stroke of unknown onset. I think it's actually probably greater than that, more like uh, up to, upward towards 30%. And there's a lot of other mechanisms involved once you're in that unknown time frame. Um, prothrombotic factors, inflammation, endothelial factors. and But there's a, there's a way of just not thinking about time, because right now we're thinking TPA, less than four and a half hours, thrombectomy, if you meet certain criteria, less than six hours, and sometimes greater than that. But there should be a way of, of looking at tissue and not just the clock. And MR is one way to do that. This is an example of diffusion-perfusion mismatch. So whatever you see is bright on the diffusion sequence is irreversibly injured, but you can see that that's smaller than the area of critically hypoperfused brain. And so there's a lot of tissue that's salvageable. And there's several trials that are looking at um, giving IVTPA in patients of unknown, unknown time of onset, as well as thrombectomy. MR-WITNESS is one of those trials that was nicely designed, and that's looking at the diffusion flare mismatch. So a patient comes in with stroke-like symptoms, 3 in the morning, unknown time of onset. Um, You can look at the diffusion, and here you can see that there's no flare hyperintensity on admission of this patient. There's subtle flare hyperintensity in the same area where there's a diffusion lesion. And there's more conspicuous or bright flare abnormality underlying this diffusion sequence. All three of these patients had an unknown time of onset. But the question is, which of these patients should we give TPA to, and and will it be safe? And so in the MR Witness trial, they looked at 80 to 100 patients that was presented at the ISE this past uh, February. And um, there was an open-label phase two 10 center study using IVTPA, unknown time of onset. The median time to TPA, once you retrospectively look at the, the, the time of onset, was 11 hours. And it was shown to be safe. A little bit more on that. So uh, just because my interest is in imaging, so I, what, what was done here is, Qualitatively, you you could see the difference and score it. No flare abnormality, subtle flare abnormality, conspicuous flare abnormality. But then you could draw an ROI. All of us can do this. Draw an ROI where the flare lesion is. And then look at the brightest area, look at the signal intensity, and compare it to the homologous part of the brain on the other side. And where the sensitivity and specificity cross is where that threshold was chosen to be for selecting patients for giving TPA with an unknown time of onset, and that number was 1.15. And what did we find? It's feasible, and um, it was safe. The rate of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage after IV TPA with a median time of 11 hours was 1.25%, and that's less than ECAS-3, which is around 5 to 6%. And there is a planned randomized trial that's coming next to confirm these findings. And more so than just IVTPA is expanding who's eligible for thrombectomy, for stent retriever treatment, and there's the trial done that's going on looking at this use for large proximal exclu- occlusions that are documented with wake-up strokes. Malignant MCA is a big problem. Uh, we see a lot of these patients who, who swell early on. And, and are being evaluated for decompression there's only one proven therapy and that's uh, the decompression and and just to move forward quickly this is pretty remarkable right so multiple trials have, have borne this out that the nnt for uh, different outcomes that are survival and morbidity sparing are very low the so nnt for modified rankin of being independent at home and not using any cane or walker is four that's really low nnt for survival is two and even if you're older uh, it's a reasonable um, nnt now modified rankin scale of less than or equal to four is a little different right you're much more disabled with a modified rank of four but clearly it works but there is a lot of morbidity associated with it and so, is there a, more of an internal phenotype or uh, a drug therapy that we can use? And there is. And so, no fellow should leave the University of Maryland without uh, knowing intimately about gliburide and, and the study, that, the work that's been done in Dr. Samard's lab. Um, he discovered this uh, SUR1 TRMP channel uh, using a patch clamp technique. And, Basically, ischemia leads to ATP depletion, we all know that, but this channel is sensitive to rapid ATP depletion, and that channel opens up, sodium comes in, chloride and water comes in, you get cytotoxic edema, and and so this sort of accidental necrotic cell death. And this channel is upregulated after ischemia and reperfusion injury, and is, is was found to be highly sensitive in the preclinical models to glibankamide, which is a uh, urea diabetic medication and so a recent uh, phase two uh, sort of pilot study was done and, well a phase two safety and efficacy study was done at 18 centers 83 patients baseline well that's not really important um, but the primary endpoint was avoidance of needing to go on towards a hemicraniectomy and that was not meant Um, but there was enough evidence showing a signal of efficacy to move towards a phase three trial, which is called the CHARM trial, which is going to start soon, and we'll be enrolling here. Um, We did see uh, an an improvement in in midline shift and um, biomarkers like uh, metalloproteinic uh, or MMP9, and, and that's it. And so I think we always try to have a one-size-fits-all regardless of the underlying pathophysiology tbi i mean not tbi but um, pathophysiologic features but that's not going to work all the time Um, so we need more individualized approaches more nuance more biomarkers and um, sort of precision medicine approach Um, prognostication after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is more complicated since the ttm era Uh, recent clinical trials in tbi and ich have clarified what we do at the bedside and there's many advances in the ischemic stroke world for IA techniques and we're expanding the opportunities to treat with IV tPA and thrombectomy. I'll take any questions. Thank you. The truth is i haven't reviewed that yet that's okay um but where was that study done was that done in was an asian study in china i think and what was the premise of the low dose tpa was it just that we can get away with smaller amounts and have lower complication rates i mean just knowing the ninds trials um I guess it's lower TPA doses in an expanded time frame. Is that yeah, what it was? I think they no. had the same time frames. And again, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm my area, I didn't read it that carefully. It definitely had a lower um, bleed rate. Bleed rate? As far as a, being a game changer, I think just because the safety profile of IVTPA is so good already by ECAS 3, up to four and a half hours, I don't know that it would be game changing, but any incremental improvement in our ability to ex, you know, expand the patient population that actually gets IVTPA, because as you know, even though we have this FDA approved therapy, um, yeah, 10% of patients actually get it. And unless you're in Houston, then maybe 40% of patients get it because they've got a mobile scanner and a chairman of neurology who sits in an ambulance and goes around and, 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 and assesses these patients. And so, any other questions? Thanks for your attention.